So the next day, um, the, the farmer came by, but he had some, some bad news. He said, son, I'm, I, I'm afraid to tell you that your donkey died. And so the boy said, well, just give me back my money. Farmer says, I can't do that. I already spent it. Okay, then, just unload the donkey, the boy said. Farmer asked, well, what do you want to do with a dead donkey? I'll raffle him off, the boy said. You can't raffle off a dead donkey. Sure can. I just won't tell anybody that he died. So a month later, the farmer saw the boy and asked, well, so what became of your donkey? Boy said, I raffled him off, sold 500 tickets at two bucks a piece, and I made a profit of $998. Well, didn't anyone complain about it? The old farmer asked. Only the guy who won. So I gave him back his two bucks. <laughs> now, none of us likes to be had, right? None of us likes to be had. And yet, 20% of us end up being deceived by some scheme. That was the experience of the people in our text, the children of Israel. They discovered after the fact that they had been had. So we're in the book of Joshua. We're continuing with our series, Joshua chapter 9. Uh, we will read verse, verse 3 to the end. I will read major portions of it, but I will only ask you to help me to read verses 8 through 13. So when we get to verse 8, you will in fact read that all the way to verse 13, and then I will continue. Verse 3, But when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to deception to save themselves. They sent ambassadors to Joshua, loading their donkeys with weathered saddlebags and old patched wineskins. They put on worn-out patched sandals and ragged clothes, and the bread they took with them was dry and moldy. When they arrived at the camp of Israel at Gilgal, they told Joshua and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant land to ask you to make a peace treaty with us. The Israelites replied, to these Hevites, how do we know you don't live nearby? For if you do, we cannot make a treaty with you. Verse 8. Thank you. So the Israelites examined their food, but they did not consult the Lord. Then Joshua made a peace treaty with them and guaranteed their safety, and the leaders of the community ratified the agreement with a binding oath. 
Three days after making the treaty, they learned that these people actually lived nearby. The Israelites set out at once to investigate and reached their towns in three days. The names of these towns were Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack the towns, for the Israelite leaders had made a vow to them in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. The people of Israel grumbled against their leaders because of the treaty. The leaders replied, Since we have sworn an oath in the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel, we cannot touch them. This is what we must do. We must let them live, for divine anger would come upon us if we broke our oath. Let them live. So they made them woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community, as the Israelite leaders directed. Joshua called together the Gibeonites and said, Why did you lie to us? Why did you say that you live in a distant land when you live right here among us? May you be cursed. From now on, you will always be servants who cut wood and carry water for the house of my God. They replied, We did it because we, your servants, were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you this entire land and to destroy all the people living in it. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you. That is why we have done this. Now we are at your mercy. Do to us whatever you think is right. So there's a major blunder that God's people have made. We ourselves as well are capable of making blunders just as serious. And so this message is going to ask you that if you want to avoid being had and making blunders, you're going to have to do several things. The first of which is this. Resist trading your conviction for a compromise. Resist trading your conviction for a compromise. Notice the words, we cannot make a treaty with you. I'm told that a treaty is really a signed agreement between two parties, usually countries, and that agreement obligates them to respect each other's sovereignty and to guarantee their right to peaceful coexistence. And so the Treaty of Versailles brought an end to World War I, and it established what is now known as the United Nations, that is pretty much the peacekeeping body of the world, if you will. The Treaty of Paris ended the revolutionary war between Britain and the American colonies. And I didn't even know this, but I, I just recently learned that there was a Treaty of Chicago. Does anybody know what the Treaty of, Treaty of Chicago is all about? It was signed between um, the United States and the um, American Indians, in which the American Indians gave up the, the property that was west of Lake Michigan gave that to the United States in exchange for land further west of the Missouri River where they would in fact have a reservation. Here's the question though. How do you move from we cannot make a treaty with you, which is really a conviction. It's really a conviction. We cannot make a treaty with you. I'm told that a conviction is a firmly held belief. How do you move from that to 
Then Joshua made a peace treaty with them and guaranteed their safety. How do you move from that? A compromise is giving in to standards that are less than you had agreed to. So how do you move from we cannot make a treaty with you to then Joshua made a treaty with them and guaranteed their safety? Now the Gibeonites, they lived just, I believe, less than six miles from Gilgal, which is where the Israel's, Israelites were uh, camped. They had heard about how is, the Israelites had decimated uh, Jericho and the men of Ai, and so they thought that they were next on God's hit list. They thought that uh, they would meet the same fate as the men of Ai and Jericho um, had met. And so to ensure their survival, and we're told that survival is the first law of nature. Everybody wants to live. Everybody wants to survive. And so in order to um, guarantee their survival, they came up with a clever plan to send a delegation to Joshua saying, make a treaty with us. Promise that you won't destroy us. Let us live and we will serve you forever. But there's a problem with that though. The problem being that they weren't who they said they were. And they weren't from where they said they were from. And the, the, the motive within, behind which they did this was not what they said it was. The Gibeonites were next on the list of people that God wanted destroyed. He had said to them, all of the inhabitants around you, of the lands around you, they are to be completely destroyed. And so to avoid extermination, these people came up with a clever plan of their own, they tricked the Israelites into signing a treaty with them, a treaty that was irreversible. Never trade in a conviction for a compromise, especially when that conviction is rooted in something that God has already told you. Here's the second thing, if you're going to avoid making major blunders. Resolve to consult God about everything. Don't miss what verse 14 in our text says. So the Israelites examined their food, but they did not consult the Lord. They signed a treaty without doing their due diligence. Now why does the author make it clear to us that they did not consult God? Why does he bother to take the time to tell us that? It is to tell us that they obviously should have consulted the Lord. That's an obvious. That's, an, that's the assumption that is being made. They really should have consulted the Lord, but they did not. If they had, God would have made it very clear to, to them that this was a no-no, that they were not to enter this agreement with these people. God had already given Moses earlier his blueprint for how they were to go about making decisions of national importance. If you turn to Numbers chapter 27, verses 18 and 18 through 21, I mean, you don't need to turn there because it's going to be on the screen behind you, you will find that in these verses, God gives Moses specific instructions for how his people were to make national decisions. So the Lord said to Moses, verse 18 says, Take Joshua, 
the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him, have him stand before Eliezer the priest and the entire assembly, and commission him in his presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eliezer the priest, so twice we're told in this passage that he should do that, who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. Now, if you read this, these verses carefully, you'll notice that in there, there is the prescribed command from God as to how they were to make decisions. It is called the Urim. In some other um, places, you'd find the Urim and the Thummim, which really consisted of two stones that the priests would bear or carry about in the ephod or in the breastplate. And so if Israel wanted to find out, for example, whether to go into war or not, they would consult the priest. He would shake these two stones and if these stones turned white, then that was God's indication that they were to proceed with whatever they're doing. If the stones turned up black, then that was a good indication that they were not to. So that is how God allowed his people to know his mind and his will in, in terms of what they should do nationally. Now what is the principle here? We, do no, we no longer have Thummims and Urims. We don't... Your pastors don't carry that around in their pockets. We don't do that. Principle here is don't make decisions whether as an individual, as a family, or as a church without first consulting God. Personal prayer, where you talk to God, you ask him personally. Family prayer, where you pray together with your family. And if you are the head of a family, you lead your family in making decisions by seeking God that way. In your small group, you pray for one another. There is community, and you determine God's mind and God's will as you pray together. Church-wide prayer as we pray together corporately. These are our ways of, of, of determining what God is saying to us in terms of decisions that we have. Last week, one person recommended to us that we must make weekly corporate prayer this central pillar of everything that we do as a church. The person even went on to say that we should really create within Brown's Chapel a room that is designated as a prayer room that people can come, to, come into at will any day of the week, any time of the, of the day, and seek God prayerfully. These are encouraging signs because that is indicating to us that we are really relying on God's wisdom for decisions that we must make about our personal relationships or business transactions, our career decisions, our college decisions, any decision that requires that we consult God. Because, you see, without first consulting God, we can end up making decisions that carry consequences that are irreversible for ourselves, for our family, and for our church. Never Forget to consult God. If you're going to avoid being had, you must also remember to take the time to read the fine print. 
Now, it's interesting that Joshua was right there with Moses when Moses said to him, or when God said to Moses, make sure that Joshua consults the Eliezer, the priest who is with him, so that Eliezer may, may tell him the things that God is saying that he should do. Joshua was right there, and yet Joshua and the leaders make a decision. They enter into an agreement without, first of all, doing their own investigation. Now, the passage is clear. Just three days of investigating would have revealed this to be a fraud. Now, who signs first and then investigates later? I mean, who does that? You, 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 you do your due diligence first. You read the fine print first, and then you sign. But that's exactly what these people did. Three days later, they realize that they have been had. They let people live whom God said should have been completely destroyed. They had agreed to do something without first taking the time to cross-check it against God's own word. And that led to some serious consequences, and they couldn't reverse that. Now, some years ago, I foolishly did the very same thing that I'm asking you not to do. Foolishly did that. Now, it only cost me a couple hundred dollars. I became the victim of a vacation scam. How many of you <laughs> have received those things about, you know, signing this thing over the phone or whatever, and uh, you can get maybe three, four hundred dollars and um, you end up in a vacation place somewhere in Florida? Now, you can easily earn back two hundred dollars. But some consequences are irreversible. Once they have been set in motion, you cannot get them back. They can never be reversed. Once you have lost it, you can't get it back. It is that serious. So remember to take time to cross-check whatever offer you're being made against God's fine print. Here's our fourth point. Repeat the word no as often as you need to. Now, how many of you can see the obvious comparison between what the Gibeonites did to the men of Israel and what the culture is doing or attempting to do with us as Christ followers? Do you see how the culture is constantly attempting to seduce us into making deals with it? And so it sends a delegation, if you will, to us saying, make a deal with us. Don't destroy us. Allow us to live among you and we will serve you forever. And so what should your response be when that is said to you? It should be a resounding no. It should be, we cannot make a treaty with you. We won't be duped into making decisions that couldn't be further from God's will for us. Because if we do, not only will we dishonor God, but we may wake up one morning to consequences that are irreversible for us, for our families, and for our church family. And so what in the world am I talking about when I say that? Ever since the beginning of time way back in Genesis, delegation after delegation after delegation have been sent to God's people to seduce God's people into making deals with the culture. First, it was the serpent 
who tried to move Eve from her conviction to a compromise. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we hear this serpent reasoning with Eve. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, what conviction did Eve begin with? It was this. I must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. I must not even touch it. There's separation between me and that tree, is what she's saying. Where did she get her conviction from? Directly from God. God had specifically said that to her. And so that formed her conviction. But she traded it for a compromise. She allowed the serpent to somehow plant doubt in her mind by a statement and by a question. And the question was this, did God really say? Implying that God really did not say. And then the statement being, you will not surely die, implying that God didn't know what he was talking about. And so Eve traded her conviction for compromise and she brought irreversible uh, consequences on herself, on her family, and indeed on the entire world. She was evicted from the garden. She'd have to endure the pain of childbirth. Her husband would toil and sweat for his daily bread. Husbands, you, 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 you should be resentful a little bit of that, shouldn't you? She would always be jockeying with him for control of the family. And whenever you, I'm sure you guys were married, and I am, and we, we know that, that wives tend to jockey for control within the marriage. The entire world was plunged into sin because of the fact that Eve traded in her conviction for a compromise. But the culture sends another delegation to seduce us into trading in our conviction for compromise in the area of our relationships. So this delegation knows that God has called us as believers to the conviction that we will not date or marry an unbeliever. It knows God's question in the book of Amos. Can two people walk together unless they are in agreement? And it is familiar with God's command in 2 Corinthians 6 and verses 14 to 15. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, what is the obvious answer to each of these questions? 
answer is nothing. But this delegation says, but you're so lonely. You've, you, you haven't been able to find a companion in church. And besides, he is extremely good-looking. You'd be a fool to pass up this great opportunity. Too many are still falling for that trick, that deception. You wake up one morning in a marriage that is a nightmare and realize that you've been had. And by the time that you're able to ask, why did you lie to me? You find that the consequences for yourself and for your family and for your church family are irreversible. But then the culture sends yet another delegation to seduce us into trading our convictions for a compromise in the area of sexual purity. God has called us to the conviction that our bodies are the temple of the living God, temple of the Holy Spirit. God has called us to sexual purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality, God says. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So this delegation knows that God has com commanded us and committed us and called us to purity. But it convinces women that this is a new day. You have the right to wear whatever you want, and regardless of whether your Christian brothers have difficult, a difficult time uh, bouncing their eyes and starving their mind, as one psychologist tells us, your body is your power. You can do with it whatever you want. So it also convinces us as men that we don't have to flee from sexual temptation. We can store up as many images in our mind as possible and then feast on them later on. It convinces teens that they don't really have to set boundaries before marriage. Everyone is making out, and so you can explore and do whatever you want. If you really love each other, then the sky is the limit. Before you know it, you have exchanged a conviction that you receive from God for a compromise that the delegation from the culture is sending you. And then you wake up one morning to consequences that are irreversible for yourself, for your family, for your church family. And then finally, the culture sends another delegation to seduce us as Christ followers into trading our convictions for a compromise in the area of our commitment to marriage. God has called us to the conviction that marriage is a permanent covenant between one man and one woman who live together under God in the exclusive relationship that is called marriage. The husband loving his wife by serving her, by leading her, and by protecting her. And the wife loving her husband by respecting him and submitting to his leadership within the home. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33, Paul tells us this, Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. However, this delegation comes, with us, comes to us with messages like these, It doesn't matter who you love, everybody deserves to be happy. 
Nobody should have to stay in an unhappy marriage. If you don't love each other anymore, you, you're right to move on to the next person. Because everybody deserves to be happy. Having exchanged conviction for a compromise, you wake up one morning and you realize after the affair, after the divorce, after the regret that you've set in motion some consequences that are irreversible for you, for your family, for your church family. Here's the bottom line to our message. Your convictions must be rooted in what God's word says, regardless of what the culture says. How many of you are prepared to reject what the culture is saying and to remain true to what God's word is saying? Three application points, first of which is this. Make holiness unto the Lord the guiding principle of your life. Make holiness unto the Lord the guiding principle of your life. God has called us as his people to holiness, and we can't make ourselves holy. It is he who is making us holy as we submit to his authority. So I want to challenge you to grab a hold of that reality this morning and make that reality the guiding principle of your life, that God is on a mission to make you more like Christ, to make you holy as you submit to him as you learn to consult him with every decision that you are going to make, whether it's about a career, a relationship, a college, whatever, a business transaction. God is using all these decisions and using his word and the experiences of life to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Here's the sub-point, one of the sub-points in point one. We're only dealing with one point that has several sub-points. A is this, ask the Holy Spirit for the courage to say no to the culture and yes to his will. I refer you only to Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 18 which tell us this, Paul himself writing. But I say, Paul is writing to believers now, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. There's a, there's a perpetual war going on between your flesh, what your flesh wants, and what the spirit wants. And the only way that the spirit wins is when you submit to the spirit. And when you submit to the spirit, that is when he starts producing in you the fruit of the spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and faithfulness. And I want to challenge you to allow the power of the Holy Spirit to destroy anything in you that is not from God or to God. Any affection, any desire, any inclination within you that is not either from God, for God, or toward God, we must allow the Holy Spirit to put to death. This is what we're told in Galatians as well. Put to death, therefore, Paul writing, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Now, we can't by ourselves put these things to death. We must allow the Holy Spirit to bring his power to bear on destroying these things in our lives. Here's our final sub-point. Yield. It's a very strong word. A, ver- a word that we often have very difficult, a lot of difficulty with, even in traffic sometimes. It's difficult to yield, especially when you're in a hurry. Yield to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in you that leads to holiness. There is a yielding of ourselves that needs to happen. There is a, we, we need to literally say to God each day, God, here is my life. I yield control to the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit may do in me the very things that the Holy Spirit wants to do in me today. There's a prayer that Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. I will close with that. Paul prays this, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Another version says, through and through. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That can only happen as we are yielding ourselves to him. We are not afraid of the Holy Spirit because some people have misused the Holy Spirit and there are all kinds of abuses that happen in the name of the Holy Spirit. We are not afraid or fearful of the Holy Spirit. We we recognize that there is a work that the Spirit of God is doing in us as we yield to him. And the work that he wants to do is to sanctify our entire being so that our body, soul, and spirit are preserved blameless unto everlasting life. Let us pray. God, help us to be people of strong conviction. Convictions that are rooted in the word of God. Convictions, dear God, that cause us to stand up for what is right and for what is righteous. Convictions, dear God, that allow us to yield to you constantly so that the fruit of the Spirit may be the things that come from our lives daily. God, we pray over this congregation this morning that you would help us in our decision-making to always consult you. Help us in times of temptation, God, to have the strength to say no. Help us as men to be able to flee temptations, because that's what your word says, that we must run from it. That we not stay around long enough to see where the temptation leads, but that we run from it. Give us the grace, dear God, to stand firm in you, because you are our strength. God, we ask your blessings upon your people. Pray, dear God, if, if there's one person here who needs to do business with you before they leave, if there's one person who needs to surrender their heart to Jesus, if there's one believer who needs to surrender fully to the Holy Spirit, that even now you will get, grant the grace to allow that to happen because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.